if you don't have business to manage, you don't need a manager, mm. right? If you, th- there's just certain things, if you don't have any publicity, if no one's talking about you publicly, you don't need a PR. You know, there's just certain things that if you don't have a, a digital existence or footprint, you don't need a digital marketing team yet. You need to get your own content up first, right? So there's just steps that you need to take before you even look to go outside. Because if you're not willing to do the work, you don't know how to hire someone to do the work. Welcome to United Masters Select Conversations brought to you by Ally. I'm Damian Scott. Today we have a very special guest all the way from Vallejo. Can't say enough about what you've accomplished so far. The guy who's blazing his own trail, uh, truly embodying independence, uh, businessman, uh, entrepreneur, uh, amazing rapper, freestyle extraordinaire. Come on. You know, everything. Lil Russell in the house. How yes. are you, sir? Lovely. Lovely. Welcome to New York. Yes, man, it's been beautiful. What have you been up to so far? I know you had a show last night. Yeah, we did a show last minute. 500 tickets in eight hours. That was absolutely incredible. Uh, We've just been doing a lot of PR work, uh, you know, working with UM and Pepsi on the Music Lab. And yeah, just getting work done, getting to it. Yeah. And this was all done through your platform, right? Everything that you produce and everything that you give to fans is brought through this. this yeah, yeah, we right. own the ticketing platform, we own the platforms, we sell our music through, the merch, everything, everything is done in-house independently. We want to get to, you know, how you were able to set that up and the mechanics behind that so we can give up-and-coming artists, you know, the opportunity to really understand how that works and, you know, what it takes to actually create it. But for some people who, who you know, don't have an understanding about how you got to be sitting in this chair right now, uh, can you give them a little background about you know how you got your start? Um, so much to cover. I started um, music early. I was writing and doing things in like middle school, releasing mixtapes, battle rapping, and I took a little break for a while to hone my craft. I released my first project in 2018, The Field Effect, and um, from then we start kind of getting all the experience necessary to build what we built today. We start learning how to throw shows, learning how to shoot content, learning how to sell merch, learning how to make merch and produce it, uh, learning about publishing and distro and royalties and things like that. So everything has really been um, a culmination, just learning through practice, right? Taking those steps each time. You you don't know how to put your music on DSP, so you go research and you figure out and you want to learn how to collect all of your revenue, you go on YouTube and you figure out and booking shows and um, everything has just been like a step-by-step process to here. So you started at a young age, right? There's a gap between you said you were honing your craft and then you started taking it seriously. What hurdles did you have to overcome specifically to start taking it seriously? Like what was the thing that you were like, this um, is the, the... Fear. Fear. Fear, self-doubt, lack of knowledge, insecurity. Um, all of those things of just, um, am I ready to stand in front of the world and share what I've created in my room? Uh, is my craft ready? Do I feel like I'm, I'm good enough to, to withstand whatever is currently taking place? And just fear of jumping, like fear of not having that security of having a job and having that support and just chasing a dream publicly and possibly failing. Mm-hmm. And there's no, there's no, uh, yeah. 
your parents, I've, I've heard you talk about your dad a lot. Were they very supportive in, in pushing you towards rapping or were they pretty um, different? Definitely supportive uh, towards the latter and always throughout the journey, kind of, but just like initially at like a 25% rate mm-hmm. and then at a 50% rate and then to a, oh yeah, we're all in. This is what we're doing. You know, that was gradual, but I had to earn that support. You know, that support comes through work. I had to deliver things first to give them something to support. Right. All right. And when you, when they finally got that support, what were they doing for you? Uh, so my dad, um, has invested in me on a multitude of times. He actually purchased my first studio equipment. You remember what that equipment was specifically? Man, we went to the flea market and got a dynamic microphone, like a little handheld microphone that I used to hang in my closet. He got me my first computer. Um, after that, he helped me get monitor, just different things that I needed. Um, he invested in merch with me early, buying hoodies and garments for us to press. Um, my first show ever, he went in with me 50-50, splitting the venue fee. It was like five or $6,000 to do that. Um, and my mom helps out with <clears throat> just about everything. All the little things that people don't understand takes a lot to execute. Like my mom delivers merch that we pack and ship. She'll uh, ban our wristbands for shows. She keeps the pergola, the venue that we created clean and just manage whatever I need managed, you know, on the on the other end. Right, right. And then, you know, through that, you were able to kind of build this style uh, that, you know, we've all grown to love. But when your first album, the music is very charged, you know, it's mm. very urgent. Right. The music is very much about what's happening in the streets right now, what's happening uh, with regard to black people and the government and policing. Uh, what led you down that path initially to, to make music like that? Um, life and America and just the experience, you know, I, my, my writing is very present, very active. I live with my ears and my eyes open. So just anything that I experience is usually what I kind of spew out, you know, naturally, like everyone else, you spit up what you consume. So, you know, we were in a time where a lot was happening. It was right. hyperactive when I wrote the field effects. So there was just so much to talk about. And I hadn't made an album in so long. It was like, everything was just sitting there bubbling, waiting. Yeah. It sounds like the hood of blues, right? Yeah. It's like, so it's just so raw and like, it's like a, a like a slice into America, right? It cuts, right. In, cuts, cuts <laughs> deep. Uh, was there any like nervousness in that being your, the first type of music that you would make coming out? Were you thinking, uh, oh, maybe I should be a little bit more subdued and, Nah, there was no nervousness, really, because I felt like I was providing something that was needed. I felt like I was giving something that was necessary that didn't exist yet. So I wasn't nervous because I felt like it was, you know, this is this is something new and different. You know, of course, you have like a little a little antsiness about like how it'll be received because it's left field from what everyone was listening to. But I knew that I was providing what was necessary just in hip hop and just in music in general. Mm. Starting from, if you think back to when you were first starting out, right, like even when you were much younger to that first album, um, you know, how would you say you went about honing that that style? I'm sure like what we saw in that album and heard in that album was not what you first uh, rapped. No, right? definitely not. So like, what would you, how would you say you, you, you went about the process of, of uh, figuring out what that should be? Um, man, I shot my shots every day. 
I've had a phase of sounding like every single one of my favorite artists until I found myself who and found my own lane. Man, Lil Wayne, Hove, Kanye, Chance the Rapper, Kendrick Cole, Drake. You know, I've had a phase, DMX. I've had a phase of sounding like every single one of them until I finally got comfortable in my own life and in my own sound and in my own style. And eventually I got to hone that by just doing it every day. Mm. And there's like no... Uh... If you were to describe your style, how would how would you describe it right now? Indescribable. Of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> would you would you say it's fair to say that the aperture of uh, the subject matter and and even like the tonality of the music has has widened since that first? Definitely, because uh, my life experience has grew. My level of wisdom has grown. Um, how I see the world has grown. I have a completely different perspective now, and uh, I've just got to experience more. I've, I've gained emotional intelligence, so right. definitely it has widened tremendously. Because I think I think a lot of artists that we see that are brand new, they do what you say. You know, they go through everybody that they right. admire first, and they try to uh, you know replicate what they admire. Right. right. Um, if there's any. You know, a single piece of advice that you can give to an artist who's going through that right now, what would you say? Shoot 10,000 shots. Just go through all of them. The only way to get through that phase is to go through that phase. Mm. I think it's a necessary component to finding your sound. And uh, I think every artist has went through it. Jay-Z is one of the greatest in the world. And there was a point where he was rapping like Jazz O and rapping like his favorites. Right? So you you absolutely have to. I think that's not nothing to ever be ashamed of. Like, go through that phase so you can get through that phase. Mm. Do you remember the making of the first album? Yeah, slightly, slightly. I remember like pockets of time bringing in uh, one of my homies, Chow Main. I, I first brought him in as like a recording engineer to just kind of record me through it. And I remember mixing some of those records together and we were both learning just how to, you know, how to do everything as, as a unit. And it was really just me and him that kind of scoped that project. I had features from the homies. A lot of the homies do background vocals. I had my sister do some background vocals. My daughter's mom, her sister just really bringing in the people around me to make that project so using everything you had at your disposal using everything that was around me to make it happen you remember how if you could think about uh, a dollar amount that it, it took to create that album um when i was ready to create that album i already had my own studio and everything so um it was free to me i think the only thing that cost me was like leasing the beats and that was probably like $50 per beat or something like mm. that. And I was working then, so that was like an easy thing to cover. But other than that, I already had invested in all the equipment to create the project. So it was it was an easy one. All right. When a song is finished now, when a project's finished now, uh, what is the process by which you decide it's done? And has that changed at all? Um, that's usually my heart says it. It's like, you know, this is completely, you know, I, that's something that is not really determined by any specific thing. It's like you listen to the music and you sit with it and it's like, this is complete. I feel good about it. Right. I've been with some artists, they go into the car, ride around the hood with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I know one artist we, we goes do like, all the tests. to the restaurant and plays it. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, I definitely do all the tests, man. I used to love the car test. I used to have a Mustang GT and I used to just mob around with the windows down and test and test in the garage. I, I also, even that album specifically, I brought 
a bunch of my family and homies and I played it in a garage and and uh yeah, we we do those tests too on different speaker systems and just see how it feels and how everyone reacts and connects to it. Are there any mistakes that you remember from that that, that you vowed to never repeat? Mistakes? Nah. I mean everything got me here. I don't think I don't think any. There's nothing where you're like, damn, I, 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 like I wish that didn't happen. Nah, not really. Everything was, you know, there was things that we didn't accomplish on a mixing end, but I'm happy we didn't there because it, it made in, us in correct it for the next ones. Yeah, just getting songs to sound. Exactly. You know, mixing is one of those things that you're never great at. You just keep getting better at right. or you keep getting worse at. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's interesting. It's interesting. I think uh, your early albums are longer than your, yeah. than your uh, newer work, right? And I think a lot of people now, because of streaming, work to make their albums as long as possible just hmm. to, just to you know capture right, right. that uh, listener uh do you think about that at all when making them Does, no there's no i mean i think i think my none at all i think my albums have gotten shorter just because as i've grown i have a lot less to say and i'm able to say a lot more with a lot less words right so on the heels of that i also wanted to we're talking about your dad and your first show. Do you do you remember your first show? Like, what do you remember about it? Like, take us back to what that what man. That, that whole energy was uh, beautiful because we released the album, and everybody was just kind of talking about it around the city and my family and my peers. And I was like, I'm gonna do a show, right? It was my first time ever doing a show. I never, never performed, performed live ever. And I decided to rent out a 300 cat theater. I never performed ever, but I was like, I'm gonna do a show, and people gonna show up, right? So I start rehearsing. I end up buying a mixing board to start doing live rehearsals. I start investing in live equipment. And I remember just like honing my craft through that period leading up to the show. One time uh, my cousin came over and I was like rehearsing and my pops was like, oh, do that one. And I start rapping it and I was just breathy. I couldn't get all the words. And he was like, stop, you know, and I was like, nah, I'm going to go because I'm practicing, you know, yeah. this is how we get better. But just those moments. And uh, I end up doing mushrooms prior to the show, like a few weeks. And um, it really just opened me up and alleviated a lot of that remaining fear. And uh, we had a crazy show, madly successful, and the energy was there. And after it was beautiful because people was like, man, it doesn't feel like it's your first time performing. We had no clue. And um, man, just the energy around it. That was my first time booking a venue. So I had to learn the process of emailing a booker and getting the email template and how to how to tag the subject line to get their attention and and what the split, what a door fee looks like, what a rental fee looks like, what that split, having to get event insurance. Like I, I literally had to learn every step of throwing my own concert and uh, it was just beautiful. Getting merch, investing in merch so we could have merch to sell at the show. Like we went through every step and but doing that first album and that first show enabled us to do the next 21. And how did you go about marketing it? Like how does a new artist's first album go about marketing? The show? album? Though the show. Uh, the show, so we did guerrilla marketing for the show. Um, and and first and foremost, foremost, the music is the marketing. Right. Like great product sells itself. So we already had a great product that people was talking about. So all we really did was the outside aspect, the putting up the posters, the handing out CDs, the shouting it out on social media. But ultimately, the music marketed it. I didn't have to do too much more. Mm. And when... You talk about like handing out things and putting up posters. Like, how did you know where to put them up? 
Uh, man, the show was in Vallejo, so I just put yeah, them around all over Vallejo. There. Yeah, my mom and pops put some up. Me and the homies was putting some up, just going around, hanging stickers everywhere. Just We just was around the city. Mm. It's like, I, I think that's, now you have all this data, right? People, yeah. the, the companies will tell you, you can perform here, your biggest streams are here, your biggest Shazams are here. But it's not always accurate. In, in what way? Um, the data can be skewed and manipulated. Okay. Right? And I learned that early on because uh, some artists, you'll land on playlists, right? And how playlists work is if your song is in a playlist, sometimes people just listen to playlists during the gym or during their runs or their walks. And your song might come on, but they're not listening to it, but you'll get the listener count for it. So if you're on a bunch of playlists, it'll say you have 5 million monthly listeners and you'll say, oh, in L.A., like what we learned early, I had did a show in L.A. because I'm like, oh, we finna sell this out. I got 30,000 listeners in L.A. 30,000 people want to see me. That's not how the data works. And but that taught me that, oh, they're not actually fans of me. They may have just came across my music, but the data doesn't tell you that it just shows you a number. So I had to come up with a formula to figure out how many people would be willing to come to see me. And then I end up creating that. So now, yeah, when we go to cities, I know, okay, I have a minimum draw that I could get off of this number. But you don't you don't know that until you experience it and go through it. So that data is there. But if you don't have the knowledge to break it down, it's not fully of use. What does that formula look like? So what I do is I take I combine Spotify monthly listeners, Apple Music listeners and Instagram followers per city. So say in L.A., I have 20,000 listeners, Spotify. 10,000 Apple and then 30,000 followers on IG. I add that number up and then I take 1% of that, right? So I take 1% of each of those. So say I have 20,000 on Spotify. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna take 1%. So 200 people would actually show up. That's 1%. Take 1% of each and I combine that 1%, right? For all three. And then I take 25% and 50% of that number. So I'm like, at the very minimum, if a quarter of 1% doesn't show up for me, something's not happening, right? Right. But I use that as an absolute That's minimum because sometimes the quarter of 1% for me is 300 people. Mm. So if I know a quarter of 1% is 300, I'm good to go do this show. And that also gives me the ability to book the right venue size because that's also how you could lose because right. you book a, a larger room and you only feel it so much. You know, if you book the right room, then you can make 75 people come to see you look good. I think also a lot of young artists now get fooled by festivals in, 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 the, oh, in man. the same way, right? Like I've put on festivals before. I've put on events, big events before, and you, you book all these people. The smaller artists that are in between these much bigger artists, and they think that all these people that are showing up to see them are right to them. Right. And it's, it's very, uh, it's smoke and mirror, right? And it's, uh, I don't think artists should do festivals until they've established like their own base. I think it's a great way to get in front of people, but it's not a great way to determine your base and who's really there for you. And I think it could kind of stifle you early as well, because some artists, some artists first shows be festivals yeah. and they don't even have performance experience. They've jumped the line. They've jumped so many steps that now you're in the NBA and you suck. Right. Like you, you don't know how to play yet. Right. And that stifles you because now people are like, oh, we don't want to see, you know, like, you you know, you got to take the proper steps to get there. I've seen smaller artists go to festivals, play for 50,000 people, try to book a show. No one shows, no one shows up. up. 
No one they shows get mad up. At the fans. Right. <laughs> they're, they're like, oh, this, is, this is fucked up. And then, uh, and then they're stuck. Right. Right. There's nowhere to go. There's no momentum. There's and no that's because there. they they didn't know the steps. Because a lot of people, a lot of artists sign with a label, and a label will expedite your journey, or a label will do favors for you. You know, we can't do that for artists. You really have to earn your position. Otherwise, you're never going to know the true value of it, or of your art, or your base. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like you know a good time to talk. Start talking about the company that you have started and you own. Come on. You know, good company. How did that come about? What's the ethos behind this? Uh, man, good company just started with the homies. Started with myself, and then eventually, as I grew, I just found homies that had mutual interest and loved what I was doing, and we just start building together. So we built like a live performance platform, but we originally just started so we could have content for our art. In Vallejo, there's like no infrastructure at all. It's non-existent. There's no platforms you can go on. There's no labels, there's no radio. So we really had to create everything that we needed to build a sustainable career. And since we were home, we used to travel, have to travel back and forth, San Francisco, go to LA to shoot content, go to all these different places to, to do things for home. Mm. And that didn't make sense. So we really just start building the infrastructure there. Mm. And can you talk us through how you actually built this live uh, venue, this live event system that, that you guys have? So there's two. So we, we started with a live performance platform, which is called GC Presents. And basically, uh, a friend of mine had a shop and we created like just a set and I used it to shoot a video a shop for like a physical space. Yeah, like yeah. a physical space. And uh, we created a set and I had shot a video because I, I had just released the Field Effect 2 album. So I shot a video for that album because I wanted to make content and it went viral and it was like, OK, we have something. Let's continue. But even prior to that, we were doing I was going to like Oakland and different places and just shooting live content because I used to go on YouTube and I used to try to see what was everything needed for an artist rollout. So when an artist would drop from a label, I go on YouTube and see everything that they would release from two months before release and two months after. And I seen that it was a lot of interviews, a lot of live session, a lot of PR. So I was like, okay, since no one's offering us this, I'm going to replicate it. I'm going to make my own genius. I'm going to make my own colors, my own audio Mac. So I started doing that and we start having success. And then the live session finally hit because one of them went viral. And at that point, I start really just grabbing all the artists I loved around me or the ones I would find. And I start doing the same thing for them. The formula works. And when we find ones we love, we just go a bit more. And uh, I just love making content, dope content based around music. And uh, But yeah, it really just started as us trying to fulfill that need. Mm. And something else novel that you, you kind of pioneered is this ability for fans to buy a piece of a song. That you yeah. Have, right? So can you, can you talk about the actual mechanics of how this works? If I want to buy a piece of one of your songs, yeah. how do I do that? And what, so, do, and what do I actually get? So it starts when you when you distro a song, there's 100 percent of a pie that you could allocate. What I started doing, I initially was sending splits the way a label does. They're called master points, you know, that people get throughout the label. I started giving them to my team and to my dad and the people who were helping me create. Eventually, it got to a point where it was like, oh, we have some left over. We don't need all of this. Let's sell some to the well. Let's give some away first. I gave away equity, and then it got to the you point were where it was like, of your I was just giving 
No, not my publishing of the master. Those the are master two different recording. ones, right? right? Okay. So the master recording, my publishing, I, I have completely, yeah, but okay. of the master recording, yeah. Just making sure. I was like, this is yeah, the master, yeah. and we just gave away equity just because I, people helped us get to this point. I feel like if you consume music as a super fan, you deserve to have a stake in it into perpetuity. So we did that, and then we were like, we should sell this. This is an asset. This is another form of revenue from music that people don't get, we should actually sell them because it's a stake. A $200 investment today could make you money for the rest of your life into perpetuity. Distro pays out every month. So to me, that's a great investment, especially if I can invest in someone that I could see every day going viral or I just love their product. It's an easy call. So we just started, we created a form where you go submit an offer and then it comes to us and we review it. If I accept the offer, I'll send an agreement saying this is a percentage I'm allocating to you of this song. Once that's signed and the payment is sent, I send the split through the distro. We started using this through distro kit. You'll get an email with a sign up code. You sign up, you're collecting your revenue. They pay you every month. Now we have new distro partners that we're doing it through the same exact system. And uh, you get to check all the data and analytics of the song you own a percentage in and you just see it rolling in. You don't have to do nothing else beyond that. So a one-time payment could get you money into perpetuity. Wow. Last time we spoke, you know, we were talking about uh, new artists and managers, and you were like, you know, there's no reason to hire anybody until you need to hire somebody. Right. You know, it sounds like you employ a bunch of people. Yeah. Uh, can you walk through what the hiring process was like? When, who was the first person you hired outside of your family? Uh, you know, and how does a good company actually work? So... I think all of my first hires were my family. So just initially, they were people who were helping me for free. And now they just get paid to do it because they I think you get your biggest check from the work you do that you don't get paid for. And all of my friends work for free for so long that now it's like there's money coming in. And, and we I like to do a split system like my friends own equity and everything they help create. So any piece of content they touch or create, they own a percentage in When money comes in like merch. We're going to an equity system with merch. So we're there's a total revenue. We're splitting that up by percentages, whatever percent your role is worth. But um, yeah. And I'm also someone who like. I overpay. Right. Because I don't I don't believe in a pay rate mm. like you may have worked eight hours, but it depends on what you did. Mm. That that may be worth a lot more. I'm in a paying people what I feel like their their duty is worth. I've had some people who work multiple hours for me. And if I would have gave them a rate, they would only made 80, 90 bucks. But it's like I'm going to give you 500 because I know what you had to do. So is there like a CEO, a president, like a head of marketing? Uh, are there roles like that or is it everybody kind of takes a part of you know, the responsibility and they just own that. So, I mean, we kind of have assigned roles in a way, but not not necessarily. Everybody plays the role necessary to win. So we have a team that specifically handles and works on merch, but they also help with live sessions if need be. And then uh, Tieta handles a lot of the social media and digital, but I handle as well. David helps Cujo. So there's just whatever role needs to be played is the role that everyone plays. Right. And there's... Um... I would love for you to really quickly, you know, go back to what we were saying in our last conversation when you were like, no one needs to hire anybody, you know, to a new artist out there, mm -hmm. you know, explain to them why they should slow down and relax before they start giving somebody a part of their, you know, the little bit of money that they that they are getting. Right. Yeah. I, I think that 
I mean, I think it's important to to build that team early in the in the build equity, but I think they should earn it. You know, like some people are looking for a manager really early. And it's like, well, he hasn't even done nothing. I think people should always, you know, like they should show their worth before you, you offer them anything in exchange. If you don't have business to manage, you don't need a manager. Mm. Right. If you there's just certain things. if you don't have any publicity, if no one's talking about you publicly, you don't need a PR. You know, there's just certain things that if you don't have a, a digital existence or footprint, you don't need a digital marketing team yet. You need to get your own content up first, right? So there's just steps that you need to take before you even look to go outside. Because if you're not willing to do the work, you don't know how to hire someone to do the work. You don't right. know what they're supposed to deliver. Right. Yeah, I think that's very important. I think a lot of people kind of stumble there. You see a lot of people hire the wrong manager, derail their careers. And right. Yeah, <laughs> it's insane. Uh, I want to go over the merch. You know, I think the merch is, you know, almost as popular as your music. Definitely. You went as far as buying like a printing uh, a the system, whole, yeah. the, whole, the whole thing. Yeah. You know, how did you go about that? How do you even know what to buy? YouTube. You just went on YouTube. Man, so when we were doing the first show, it was like, man, we need merch. We need merch to sell. I knew that I wasn't going to win on tickets. It cost me 5000 to rent the venue. I had a first album. I knew I was only going to sell a hundred tickets max. I, mean, I knew that wasn't going to, you know, equate, but merch was a way to alleviate that. And uh, I just went on YouTube and looked up, okay, how do you start merch? And then you learn what kind do you want to do? You want to do DTG, screen transfers. I started looking into different companies, sourcing garments, things like that. I've YouTubed everything. My entire career is based on YouTube, Google, and experience. And so you went on, on YouTube eventually and was like, which is the best Right. What is the top three presses of 2020, you know, type shit. And you end up landing somewhere and then you reach out and you see these companies. Now, what can I afford? And that was a pivotal time for me, because when I had to invest in, in my merch presses, I had got my car repossessed and I got the lien and it was like, it'll cost you this much to get it out. Then you had to pay the payment. And I was in a dilemma of like, ah, you know, this car meant the world to me. And, uh, and I decided to get merch equipment and to leave the car. So that was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Man. One of the things you said that I loved was uh, artists should never stop actually selling music. Right. That right now they are uh, lulled into believing that this streaming uh, ecosystem is all that there is and that they right. sh- that's all that they should do. Uh, why do you think otherwise? Um, because it's your art. Like, if you're a painter, you sell paintings. If you're a musician, you sell music. Like, that. that's the first step. I think that's always been a basic since the beginning of it. They used to print their demos and sell them. That was something that should have never stopped, right? Like, that's your direct product. Anyone who's a fan of you should be able to go straight to you and support you. If I'm a fan of you and I want to go to a LaRussell show, but I have to go talk to someone else first, you just, there's so much that could be mixed up and lost between that. If I want to support LaRussell, I should be able to go straight to LaRussell and do it. Right. Getting that music out there and selling it to people. And one of the things that I, I love that you said is that you would want to figure out a way to get as big as someone like a Drake independently, completely without having to you know, join this big that system, right? cabal. Uh, so how possible do you think that is right now? Oh, now extremely. 
I mean, I'm on every platform that Drake would be on right now, and I'm independent. I'm on Breakfast Club. I'm on Sway. I'm on Funk Flex. I'm, you know, Fire in the Booth, Apple Music. I'm on every platform. What else That's do you the think is needed? to go to. Um, I think the only thing needed from this point is is more work and capital, but I think that comes as you grow. So I don't think, uh, I think it's highly possible, and I think the world's about to witness it within the next three years. And do you think it would take... Uh, you partnering with a larger entity in order to make that happen like you uh you know did a partnership deal with russ do you feel like you will need to join forces to get that big need to no but uh i think that it depends on how much work i'm willing to do i think if you're not going to use the labels then you have to build a, a system similar you have to build all the same infrastructure if i don't want to build all of that infrastructure then i think it's smart to partner with people who have that infrastructure built and utilize their resource so definitely but uh not signing you know drake was in a deal where he owned a small percentage of what he was creating to get his size yeah. i'm going to get that size but i'm going to own a bulk percentage of what I create and I'm going to own what I create right and that's the big difference in that situation yeah you said the the most important thing for an artist tantamount everything is ownership yeah very much so I think if you don't own nothing then you really have uh no stake no claim no control you're you're just um you're a product Mm. damn if you don't own nothing, you're a product. Someone owns you. Shit. You're you're you literally you have a barcode. You have a UPC code. That's rough. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. Yeah. All right. Uh, you know, being as this is uh, sponsored by our good friends at Ally, uh, would love for you to break down what you believe you know a new artist would need to uh, have in their arsenal to manage their money. Like we've seen so many artists uh, get successful and go broke. Seems yeah. to happen every few years. Uh, what do you think they need in order to manage the money coming in and coming out? Um, knowledge, discipline, and will. Um, I think those are the three things. You need knowledge of how to spend your man- money, how to allocate your money, where to spend your money. I've wasted a lot of money early because I didn't put it in the right places. What I didn't know. wasted the most money on? marketing in the form of playlisting ads and pr i've seen you say you, you play you paid for placements on like blogs and yeah man early on using sites like submit hub and and um man there, there was just a slew of them and there was a period where like there was a bunch of playlisting companies that was like oh we have these biggest playlist companies you know just their pr paying their own pr agencies or paying them too early um running ads improperly you know i was running ads really early and i didn't understand targeting i end up uh, meeting someone his name was cody lucero and he was like yo bro you got to change up your ad structure. You run an ads in Brazil. Like they can't even come to your show and support you. You lose. That don't make sense. Right. So learning how to do it properly. And I spent thousands doing it improperly before I got the right information. But I had to to learn it. So um, really getting that knowledge and then having the discipline, because once that money starts coming in, it's very easy to send that money out. And you got to make sure that money goes into places that make you more money. I came to NY you know, to do this thing for UM and Pepsi, but I threw a show while I was here. 
that generated me more money. I made songs while I was here that's going to generate me more money, things like that. And then um, Will is just like, you have to want it. <laughs> you know, you have to want it. If you don't want to have wealth and obtain an empire and build infrastructure, you never will. Are there any like uh, you know, digital tools or apps that you swear by that you that you you know you can't do without? Hootsuite. Mm. Hootsuite is a social media scheduler. I post about five or six times a day. I seldomly have to touch the phone. I have posts scheduled till next February of next year. You can't out content me. You feel me? Hootsuite is a, a major one. Um, What's another app? We transfer. We love We Transfer. We send so much content all over. Um, Gmail, Excel. I think every artist should learn how to use Excel. If you can learn how to data dump and read data and bust it down in Excel and just in terms of scheduling, planning, it's a great tool. Um, and then Photoshop and Premiere. All right. I think that should. Uh be in everybody's arsenal. Come I think, on. I think that should do it. Thank you very much for your time. This was great. I learned a lot. This was great. Uh, <laughs> if I ever become an artist, I know where, where not to spend money. Sorry. To buy. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Honored. Yeah.